Hello, and welcome back to the Glossy Week in Review podcast. I'm your host, senior fashion reporter, Danny Parisi, and I've got a special guest host with us this week. Uh, joining me today is Quade Walker, who is the co-founder and CEO of Bezel, uh, Bezel's online watch resale marketplace um, launched just about a year ago, I think, or a year and a half. Is that right, Quade? That is right. Well, thank you so much for being here. Why don't you give like super quick intro to Bezel, and then we'll we'll get into we're going to be talking about a bunch of watch news from this week. Uh, but just so people, you know, listeners who haven't heard of it, give us a super quick overview. What is Bezel? When did you start it? All that kind of stuff. Awesome, and, and super excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, Bezel, we are an authenticated watch marketplace. The way that Bezel works is we have a ton of inventory listed on the platform. If you see a watch that you like. Uh, we ship the watch to our headquarters in Los Angeles. Everything is authenticated in-house. The goal there is to allow us to scale the inventory so that we can either have what you want in stock or be able to source anything you want and then be able to authenticate it and make sure you're getting exactly what you would expect. We launched the business in June of last year. Uh, I quit my job to start the business in, in August of the year prior to that. So we've been at it for just over two and a half or, or so years now. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, that's kind of high level. Yeah, well, that's perfect. And, and you're a perfect person to talk to about some of the, the watch stuff going on. I feel like we've we've done a lot more watch coverage on Glossy recently. I've been getting into it more both at a personal level and as a journalist. It's a super interesting industry. So a couple of things we're going to talk about. First, we'll, we're going to talk about how watch prices have fluctuated a lot in the last year. It's interesting for you guys having launched right in the middle of 2022, which I feel like is when watch prices were really high. And then, you know, they've, they've gone up and down a bunch since then. Um, then we're going to talk about... Uh, watches in brick and mortar retail. There's a bunch of brands and retailers that have kind of been expanding their physical presence. Um, And then finally, we'll just talk about the future of watch resales. So like I said, super interesting industry. It feels like even though there's been so much demand and it's kind of been, you know, there's so many new people getting into collecting watches, like the industry feels like it's growing. At the same time, all the data I've seen has been that the prices have like been dropping since the high of 2022. We've talked about it on this podcast a couple of times, me and, and Jill, uh, but it's kind of a weird contradiction. It feels like it's getting bigger all the time, and yet the prices are going down. Um, so you launched right in the middle of 2022 when it was at their highest. Uh, what do you think is causing that you know fluctuation in price among like the high-end watches? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think we saw, as a company, the, both the highs and the lows. Like We started the business in 2021, watched the ride all the way up to 2022, and then we've obviously been in the market selling a ton of watches since then. I think what you're saying is very interesting and very true that despite the market dropping, the fact that a lot of folks in publications like yourself are talking about it is indicative of how many new buyers entered the space and how much interest there is there now. Um, what caused it? I think I've talked about this in a number of different ways. I, I think it's like obviously a cocktail of things. A lot of collectibles generally sparked a ton of interest in kind of COVID times, you saw folks that were really interested in alternative assets. So I think watches kind of rode that wave a bit. Uh, I think generally speaking, people felt wealthier. So they were buying a lot of things. People were stuck at home. They were not going on big lavish trips. And all of a sudden it made sense to buy that purchase. I think once people got to experience watches, you understand the mystique of them and the romanticized version of them and, and why it's really interesting. And I think watches have a funny way of being a slippery slope in the sense that you buy your first watch and you certainly become a collector very quickly. So I think a lot of folks fall into that path. 
Um, what caused the fluctuation? Like, you know, I think macro environment was a tough place for all collectible industries, and you saw a lot of that drop. Um, it is certainly not like a counter-cyclical market. The cool thing about watches is obviously it is a luxury good. So I, I think it was affected a little bit less than some other collectible categories that are a little bit lower price point. Um, that being said, like obviously the market has dropped 30 to 40% and it fluctuates model to model and brand to brand. So it's a combination of, of macro, but it's also how brands have just changed and grown in this period as well, where you see a lot of brands going to boutique only. You saw a lot of brands trim down their, their product offering. You saw a lot of brands expand their SKUs. You saw a lot of brands change their retail pricing, which fluctuates the secondary market. So it's kind of a cocktail of a lot of things. And where we're at now, we're seeing some brands continue to fall and some models continue to fall. And we're seeing some pieces continue to stabilize. It's the same process that we've seen in years past that were a little bit less exposed to the hype cycle. But what happens is watches is just a lot of brands will discontinue a model every year and then that model will shoot up because it's no longer available and it's inherently scarce. And then the new models will be available. It will be the first in the market, so it'll shoot up because everyone wants the first version of it so they can kind of claim that they have the first version. And then they all kind of start to stabilize in the, the prices they end up hitting at. So. We're seeing a lot of the same, but it's just kind of fluctuating based on the macro environment. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you you hit on a lot of good points. One thing is people, it, it felt like a lot of different types of collectible things, you know, whether that's sneakers, whether it's NFTs, uh, you know, had a, a big year or big couple of years in like 2021, 2022. Watches don't feel as volatile as like NFTs, for example, which had a huge upswing and then a huge collapse. Like there was a, an Axios headline I saw about watches that was like, the watch market is collapsing or something. And they had this uh, graph and it was like, you know, it was at one level in like 2021 and then a big spike up in 2022 and then 2023, like back to the same level. I'm like, that's not really a collapse. That's just, you know, it just had a spike and now it's back. It wasn't like there was no watch market before 2022. Uh, exactly. Some of the people I've talked to have like referred to it more as like a normalization and a stabilization. It's like, it's really the spike that was the outlier, not the current. Like the current prices are like basically normal historically. It's, well, it's more like we just they're they're yeah. they're also still like relatively speaking crazy in the sense that you know you're you're buying a steel sports model Rolex and some of the models like a Daytona for example and, and they're still trading double retail on the secondary market or, or well over double retail. So um, the market is still decidedly higher than it was ten years ago, right? So it's it's moving up and to the right. And I think the interesting thing there comparatively to other collectible categories is watches are certainly less new, right? Like, as you were mentioning, people have collected watches for hundreds of years, right? Like, it's not a new category that just popped up. Certainly, there is a new class of buyer that has entered the market that is a little bit more speculative. I think the way that I tell myself about this is it's like, there is a new facet to my ability to rationalize the purchase that has existed relatively recently. Like I can start saying these things are investments, and in many cases they are. But a lot of the underlying force for me buying the watch is because I love the watch and I want to wear the watch and it's expressive and I can I can you know enjoy it. It's just an icing on the cake that I can not lie to myself, but I can justify to myself that I'm making a rational decision in buying this. Um, so that's been kind of the way there. I think. The durability of, of the asset class of watches, I think, is also tied to just 
the value retention and the durability as you exercise or use the watches, which is super cool. Like if I collected art or trading cards or wine or things like that, like theoretically I'm, I'm enjoying them because I have them, but I'm not necessarily enjoying the core purpose of them. Like I'm not drinking the wine. Obviously that depletes all the value of the wine. I'm not, I'm not like taking my art around to show people that I have this collection. It's like in a controlled environment and it, you know, you can only see it in certain ways. Trading cards, they're in a vault somewhere. And so I think the cool thing about watches is like I can buy this investable asset that can be argued in many directions and I can wear it and I can enjoy it and I can go to a bar with it and I can meet other people that like the same thing that I like and it's a hobby a little bit in that sense. So I think that's the uniqueness of watches that like cars aren't even like that. You'd appreciate the value as you're driving it. So yeah, I think there's something really special about it that you know, you can, I'm obviously very biased, yeah. but it's, it's a little bit more of a durable <laughs> asset class. Yeah. I mean, and also when you buy a brand new watch, like if you can manage to get a watch new from Rolex or from a dealer, uh, it, it increases in value instantly. Like the moment you have it in your possession, totally. as opposed to cars, like you said, the moment you buy it, it goes down in value. So that's, and that feels like that's still strong, even, even as the prices have like kind of fallen over the last year, like that like you said, they're still selling double retail price. So yep. uh, let's move move to our second topic here. So I spoke uh, with um, Jeffrey Cohen, who's the president of Citizen America last week. Um, they just opened this huge 7,000 square foot flagship store uh, in New York. I think it's on Fifth Avenue. Um, and we talked about how, you know, he was telling me Citizen, which is, you know, obviously this huge Japanese company. Uh, they own a bunch of watch brands. Um, typically not sold on bezel. You guys focus more on like luxury watches, but um, he was telling me that they're not really in the retail business. They've got dealers and, you know, they do like wholesale stuff. Um, this is one of their few kind of owned stores. But after talking to him, I was doing some research and it, it seems like there's actually a lot of interest in the watch world in brick and mortar retail. Um, there's a lot of brands that have been opening their own stores. I think Bucherer just opened like their biggest store ever this year, I think. Um, Breitling is going to open like 300 stores by next year or 350 or something like that. Uh, feels like physical retail, um, you know, is having a moment for a lot of different industries, but especially for watches, which is interesting because in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of growth in online watch sales. Obviously, Bezel is one and, you know, there's a ton of other online or primarily digital places to get watches. Um, yeah, so that's a, one thing I just wanted to bring up. Let me let me hear your thoughts on it. Like, I know Bezel's primarily online do you guys have any interest in opening a store or I don't know, what are your thoughts on watches and brick and mortar? No, it's a great question. And I think it's been a very interesting for year for that. You'll see like brands like, like AP opening up a ton of AP houses. Like I think there's an, is an emphasis on the experiential more than ever. And I think brick and mortar is become just a catalyst for expressing the brand in an interesting way. Like if, if, if you've ever walked into an AP house, like like in New York, and they just opened one in, in West Hollywood in, in LA where we're based, uh, it doesn't feel like a store. It's appointment only. It has like a beautiful environment and a bar and a, a dining room. And it feels like you're in this kind of lifestyle-y membership club, I would say. And I think the whole thing about buying luxury is the environment that you're now in and how it feels and the, the, the symbolic opening of the champagne, the celebration of buying these really expensive items that make you feel a certain way. I think 
the brands that are being smart about it are the ones that are taking brick and mortar and allowing that to be an extension of the brand. Like if the fact that I want to go hang out in an AP house, void of for them to tell me they can't sell me anything, is is still a pretty cool thing to be able to to be able to say. <laughs> I think the way yeah. that we think about it is. Whether or not we will have a, a brick and mortar presence is is a great question, and I think it's something that we think about a lot. But our thinking now is: how do we take that same feeling of being enveloped in luxury and totally safe and trusted, and like there's some cool factor to the brand, and you get that kind of high touch feel? How do how do we push that as far as we can digitally? So. Our version of that now has been obsessing over the details of the product and the execution of the product digitally, pairing everyone with a concierge on our team, like a real person to talk to that is very much like their representative to the Bezel ecosystem and trying to take that as far as possible because I think the interesting part is if you can do that digitally, then you're given this ability to scale it much more efficiently. And that allows you to have inventory that is much larger. So you don't have to tell people no. Like the watch industry, I think, is, is tired of hearing no and, and hearing this is out of stock or you have to get on this wait list or it's a whole problem. So I think the goal is to mix both of those worlds. What I will say is that if you're selling six-figure plus watches, the ability to have a brick-and-mortar space to sit down and chat and talk to the client and things like that, it becomes more and more important. So we have interesting kind of hybrid experiences that we've been piloting to to offer some of that, but it's all very inspired by generally what's happening in the industry for brands like AP and Vacheron and things like that. Yeah, you know, I, I always think with, uh, you know, a product that's super exclusive or super limited, there's a line between like, you know, that exclusivity being a, a benefit where it's, you know, it's really cool. You feel like you feel good when you get it versus being just like a frustrating experience. Like I can't, you know, I can't get this watch, even though like I have the money, I can afford it. They're just, it's, it like becomes discouraging rather than encouraging. There's a, a fine line there. Um, but yeah, I think the stores are, are really interesting. The the brands that I've talked to and and have read about, a lot of them I think do especially you know this the citizen store is really like a branding thing it's like they've got an archive in there they've got a museum to the brand and i think watch buyers and watch enthusiasts are interesting in that they're they're super knowledgeable they you know have a, a lot of times a deep history of a, or a, deep, a deep knowledge of a brand's history and all the different models and i think that's one thing a store can be really good at is like you said immersing you in like the experience of the brand, but also, you know, they might have archival pieces that are not for sale, but they're just cool to see. If you're a huge AP head, you might recognize like, oh my God, this is that like watch that they made, you know, 70 years ago or something and they don't make it anymore. Something like that. That's, I think, a, a valuable component. Totally. And you, I mean, you see in, in the collabs that, that AP is doing and sorry to just index on AP, but they're a great example in the sense that like yeah. they're pushing, I think, the boundary on building brand in a way that I, I, feels different to a lot of the other brands in the watch space. And to go back to kind of the citizen conversation, it's like we we see just different types of buyers. You see the buyer that that loves the idea of walking into a branded boutique and getting the champagne and sitting down and spending hours there and it feeling like a, a monumental day to have. And you also have the buyers that are like, look, I just want this piece. Like, please don't take more of my time than you need to take. And I want to make sure that I build a relationship with you so I can trust you. But like I don't I don't need to have this performative thing happen. I think mm-hmm. 
the goal for both types of buyers or all types of buyers is that they need to feel like they are supported, they can trust the transaction, everything is authentic, and they're being treated respectfully as the way they should. And then it's just rolling out the red carpet for the ones that want it and being respectful for the time for the folks that just want the piece and they want the inventory and they don't want to wait in line and they want it fast. And so our goal was trying to do both of those things without brick and mortar, but you know, the future may hold uh, a retail space as well. Yeah. Well, speaking of the future, the last thing I want to ask you about is kind of the future of, of watch resale, particularly as the secondhand market relates to the primary market. Um, you know, the last year, Rolex started to do its own certified pre-owned program. There is like, uh, not in the luxury space, but Timex also has, you know, started a rewound program, which is secondhand watches. Um, feels like there's more of a convergence there. There's also Watchbox just merged with a bunch of jewelers to make the 1916 company. So that's going to combine new watches through like authorized dealers and secondhand through the kind of like online, you know, startup-y sort of watch marketplace world. It feels like those two areas are are converging a little bit. Um, I don't know. Have you observed that? And then as someone who's on on one side of it, on the secondhand side, what do you think that means for, for Bezel and, and other secondhand places? Yeah, it's been a really interesting year. Um, and a lot's happened and there's a lot in that question. So I think I'll, I'll preface all of this by saying like, it's, it's obviously still very early and yeah. you're seeing a lot of the kinks, I think, get worked out still in the kind of convergence of the, of the or at least the primary brands taking a bit more ownership in the secondary market. And this is like new in the sense that Rolex, it's new for Rolex and that's a big step. And obviously Rolex is a massive brand in the, in the, in the space, but I, I know AP has tried this for a while. RM has been running a CPO program for a while. Like it's like Cartier had a CPO program. Like there's a lot of brands that have been entered in the past. The cool thing about Rolex entering the space is I think, speaking to Bezel, a lot of the primary brands, particularly Rolex's outlook on the on the secondary market was like kind of like yuck, j- don't buy there, and I think now participating in the secondary market in some degree through the CPO program has been indirectly them validating the secondary market, assuming you are intentional about where you're purchasing. So since that announcement, like we've seen a a huge influx in in interest. And I think it just forced people to be trained to be cognizant of who they're buying from and what are they saying to you and like what is their procedure to protect you and things like that. And as a business that from the beginning has emphasized authenticity and an in-house process for that and, and just protecting buyers. I think it's been awesome for us to see it grow. I think we're still just in the early days of how these brands work together. Like there's a ton of kinks to, to, to work out in the sense that like pricing was a huge challenge. I know in the early days for a lot of the CPO programs where, you know, the CPO watches were 25, 30, 40% even over market. Um, you're seeing the the kind of weirdness of I walk into an authorized dealer, I see a Daytona for fourteen five, and I'm told that I have to wait a number of years to get it, but I can buy it right now for thirty five. Like that's kind mm-hmm. of a weird experience, and it's yeah, it's hard to do that right. I, I, it's a tough problem to solve, and so I think they're trying to to figure that one out uh, on, on the AD level. I think right now it feels like a lot of these decisions are, are being managed per dealer. 
Um, and they're kind of trying to figure out those cases. So I think we'll see a lot of growth there and we'll see how it changes throughout the year. The, the 1916 company is, is an ex- interesting example of that. Um, but I'm also just really curious, like you saw that now Watchbox like, can no longer sell Rolexes as part of the conversation. So it's in many ways probably an awesome thing for for GovBerg and 1916 generally to, to be in a CPO program. And like I think we're seeing a lot of consolidation generally. This is a great example of, of large jewelers coming together to make you know more unified con- you know, selections of jewelers so that they can be in the CPO program and it makes sense from a, from a buyer and a brand perspective. But it'll be interesting, like if, if you go on the Watchback site right now as a consumer and you try to search for a Rolex, you're then like punted off, not to 1916, but to GovBerg sites to search. So it's just like, it's, there's just, I don't think the glue has totally found its way in yet. Um, yeah. So I think there's a lot to, to grow into and, and change with that as, as kind of the year goes on or, you know, years go on. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a great point. And speaking of con- consolidation, uh, Rolex bought Bucherer this year too, which was so crazy. Um, I'm sure you guys had some meetings to talk about that. But uh, I mean, it, it's interesting. It kind of reminds me a little bit of, uh, you know, like you were saying for a long time, secondhand was maybe kind of looked down on. Think about in sneakers, which I think has some some parallels with watches, also some differences. But for a long time, Nike, which is like the biggest, you know, the most resold sneaker brand, uh, would not like talk about resale at all. They wouldn't yeah. talk about the secondhand market. They they didn't necessarily disparage it, but they kind of just like pretended it didn't exist. They didn't really acknowledge it. And then just in the last year or two, they've started to get into it as well. Definitely feels like secondhand fashion in general is is has become so big and established that the brands are kind of like, there's no use in pretending it doesn't exist or, you know, we should just get involved. Watches, I think, are unique in that there's been a huge secondhand watch ecosystem for years and years and years at this point, whereas maybe selling sneakers is, is a little bit newer, relatively. Yeah, um, totally. Yeah. It's it's really interesting. And, and like, I think it the brand wants to own the customer and engage with the customer and build a relationship with the customers. And I, I think it's watches more so than, than, I guess sneakers are similar, but there's just so many customers out there that like have robust Rolex collections, but have never purchased a watch from Rolex. And that's like a crazy concept to think about. And so I think it's a logical thing for brands to say like, I, I, I want that. Like I want to get involved with that. I think Thierry Stern had a, had a comment on CPO that I thought was really interesting in that he said, I, we're not going to do it. We have no plans to do it right now because CPO is hard. Like we're very good at, mm-hmm. the secondary market is a different business. Like we're very good at making watches and we're very good at primary. But to understand pricing and how the market's moving and like all the intricacies of the secondary market is like a full-time job. And mm-hmm. that's not what I've seen yet happen from any of these brands is, is like that deep of an investment in it. And Thierry Stern's thought was like, just I'll leave it to the experts in the secondary market to to run the secondary market. And that's kind of our bet is, and from the beginning, if we could build out a platform that felt like it respected the brands that we sold, it focused on selling only authentic versions of them and offering an experience where we're doing our best to celebrate these brands and protect the secondhand consumers of them, then, you know, ultimately at scale, the brands will appreciate that. And 
you know, we're as I mentioned, like it's very early days, but that's kind of our vision, scaling it out, and, and that's how kind of we're pushing it forward. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think that's a really good analysis of what's going on. All through 2024, I'm definitely going to be hitting you up and talk more about this because I'm also, you know, I'm following all the same things. Uh, I really think it's going to be interesting to see how deep the brands get into it and how much they leave to the experts, basically, which would include you. Um, I think that's all the time we have. But Quaid, this was so fun. Thank you for going very deep on watches with me. Awesome. No, super fun. And thanks for having me. For those of you listening, don't forget to give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen to this podcast, because that helps us out so much. And don't forget to subscribe to The Glossy Podcast, because you'll hear interviews with industry insiders every Wednesday, and we can review episodes with me every Friday. Once again, thank you, Quaid, for being here. And for those of you listening, we'll see you next time. Thanks.